This story is all about power. And it's wonderful to speak about power after we've heard from all these people joining the church that the power of God has been at work in their lives. That was not planned. Um, But actually, it's a great thing to do, um, to speak about the power of God when we can see it so clearly working amongst us. The story begins with Moses saying, despite, with God saying to Moses, sorry, despite uh, your deep sense of inadequacy for the task, I want to elevate you in the sight of your enemy. He even says he's going to make him like a god to Pharaoh. And then in the middle section, we've got this contest, this head-to-head battle between the power of God through Moses and the magicians of Pharaoh. And you have that wonderful point where uh, Aaron's staff becomes a snake and then the magicians do the same thing. Just for effect. And uh, their staffs turn into snakes as well. And then Aaron's snake eats the other staffs, which is awesome. So you kind of see the outcome of the story in that, that picture of the snakes. And then right at the end of this passage... Uh, The magicians are unable to answer the power of God and they have to exclaim, goodness, this is the finger of God at work. So it's a great passage of scripture and it's worth reading it as well because it's just a great story. Um, And it's good to take that whole chunk in together. So first, God speaks to Moses. I think Moses' confidence needs building up. This is still a trembling Moses. In fact, through this whole contest, you have this trembling Moses and Aaron. They are just trembling friends of God, really. Um, He seems intimidated. He's aware of his personal weakness in the situation. So I just want to read those first few verses of this passage again, from 6, 28 to 7, verse 5. When the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I am telling you. But Moses argued with the Lord, saying, I can't do it. I'm such a clumsy speaker. Why would Pharaoh listen to me? It's encouraging, isn't it? (laughs) Then the Lord said to Moses, pay close attention to this. I will make you seem like a god to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Tell Aaron everything I have commanded you. And Aaron must command Pharaoh to let the people of Israel leave his country. But I will make Pharaoh's heart stubborn so that I can multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Even then Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. So I will bring down my fist on Egypt. Then I will rescue my forces, my people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment when I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Two things God seems to want to do. First thing he seems to want to do is to raise Moses' profile in the eyes of the enemy. Second thing is to remove any doubt from Egypt that God is powerful and sovereign. Why? You know, who, who is this display for? Verse 1, see, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh. And verse 5, 
And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So who needs convincing that Yahweh is sovereign? It's Pharaoh and his, his uh, magicians. In scripture, it seems like God reserves some of his most powerful acts and displays of his power for those who stand in opposition to him and seek to hold others back also. So let me ask you, on, Eli- on the summit of Mount Carmel, when Elijah sets up the contest with the prophets of Baal, who needed convincing that God was powerful and sovereign? It wasn't Elijah. He knew that already. It was Ahab. It was Jezebel. It was the prophets of Baal. Daniel and the lion's den, the power of God, restraining starved lions. Who did God do that for? Did Daniel need convincing that God was powerful and that he had God's favour? No, the king needed to learn that lesson. The king and his advisers needed that lesson. What about with Jesus? Who felt Jesus' miracles most keenly? I would argue that I think the religious authorities and Satan himself and the demonic realm felt Jesus' miracles most powerfully. Perhaps the most profound miracle of Jesus' life was the resurrection. Now that's like the miracle of miracles. It's the greatest demonstration of his power. And I think that hit the disciples hard. But I think it hit the authorities harder. And I certainly think it hit Satan and the demonic realm harder. Great impact. What's my point? The point is that the demonstration of God's power have their greatest impact, not amongst the believing community, but in the faces of those who oppose him. The power of God seems to have the ability to strip away the counterfeit power that holds whole communities back from a relationship with God. So I believe that's what we're seeing in this story of Moses and Aaron, a divine confrontation administered through trembling servants of God. I love that. It does seem true that God likes to pick a fight from time to time. And I quite like that about God as well. Did you know that Jesus was a bit of a shocker for picking a fight? He was constantly provoking the religious people all the time. It was like he would display the power of God most readily when he wasn't supposed to and where he wasn't supposed to. It was like poking them, trying to get a reaction. He loves to pick a fight with signs and wonders. I just find that interesting, that that God seems to reserve some of his most wonderful miracles for when his opposition is standing in front of him. The Celtic church were also very good at picking fights. They would set whole communities free by picking a fight and seeing it through. This is something which has moved me ever since I heard it. One of the behaviours of the Celtic church 
was to spend time in their monasteries, very humble monasteries, praying about which area of the country that God wanted to impact with the power of his kingdom. Which area of the country that did God want to save all the people in that area? Which province was on God's heart? They would pray about it. And when they had the province, they would pray that the kingdom of God would come to that province. And then they would pray, Lord, who, do you want, who amongst us do you want to go and bring the kingdom? And when they felt that they knew that they had a group of people, uh, a mission team, they would lay hands on those people and send them out, just like Paul and Barnabas, if you know your scriptures, to do that mission. And they would choose to walk to that place and they would bless everybody they met along the way. That was a discipline that they had, walking so that they might have encounters along the way. So they get there and when they got there to that place, do you know what their habit was? Their habit was to find the darkest place in that province and acquire it. So if it belonged to somebody, they would offer money way over the odds to purchase that place. Whether it was a pagan sacrifice place or whether it was a centre of witchcraft, whatever it was. Wherever the darkest place, where, where there had been human sacrifice, where there had been people who had been petitioning demonic power in order to gain power in their lives. Wherever was the centre, they would find that place by local knowledge and they'd say, right, we want that place. And often it was on, on common land. It was a tor or it was a sacred oak or something like that. And they would go and find this place, and one way or another, they would set up camp in that place. And they would start to pray that the kingdom of God would come in that place. That's picking a fight, isn't it? Imagine finding out where the local coven do their witchcraft, where they do the, the darkest things that they do, and moving in and planting a church right there, clearing everything out. That's picking a fight, isn't it? Spiritually. Well, that's what they used to do. And they used to just sort of mark out the boundaries around that site and, and just start asking that the, the kingdom of God would come within those boundaries. And of course, the local community, from time to time, would pass by that area and that they, would, they would extend hospitality and they'd be warm to them. And that they would start to cultivate a relationship with people that knew that they'd moved in there. Um, and sure enough, people would start to think, these people are okay. And actually, I'm enjoying their company. And they start to, to break down the barriers in that community. And often there would be some sort of contest. And legend has it, and these things are passed down from the Celtic church by hearsay, essentially, but... It's a common story to hear when people are talking about this, that when people stepped over the boundary, often they were hit by the power of God. Yeah. That this was like an open heaven place. Mm. And they, their, their prayer was, if, if we can shine the light of God in the darkest area, if we can dethrone the principalities and powers that have held this area in bondage for so long and in darkness, then we can release the kingdom on a big scale. And what they found was, is whole provinces came to Christ. As people started to believe that God was for them and not against them, as people started to have their lives impacted by the power of God, when they came to this place and they met with these monks that just shone the light of Jesus, it was like the demonic realm and the custodians of demonic power in that area no longer had an answer for the people because the people would go and they'd find they got healed, they'd find that they were set free from their oppression. They find that 
their, their family started to be reunited. They find that, that there was blessing when they came to this, this God of the monks. And after a while, there was no competition. And so the local, uh, the local authority of wickedness was dethroned. What an amazing strategy for mission. What, what an aggressive thing to do. That's what I believe we can learn from the Celts, about how they went about things. They were relationally gentle, but they were spiritually incredibly aggressive. And I think that is a, a, a tremendous combination, to be relationally gentle, but spiritually aggressive. It makes me want to pick a fight. For the Lord to say, God, where do you want to reclaim? With spiritual aggression, but with gentleness and hospitality, where do you want us to reclaim? It's the same with Moses and Aaron here. I doubt they even raised their voices. They just spoke God's word. But their stance was spiritually incredibly aggressive. They were not going to back down an inch. I think sometimes we can get it the wrong way around. Sometimes we can be relationally a little bit hostile, but spiritually a little bit passive. That's a bad combination, isn't it? Just to have a rant about how bad everything is or how bad people are or to seem like you're just casting judgment and don't agree with people's lifestyle yet spiritually you're not even praying into it. That's the worst thing we can do. It's so much more of a powerful combination to be relationally warm and spiritually pack a punch, right? Amen. Yes. Yes. Our battle is not with people. It's with the powers and authorities and the forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Paul says, tear down their strongholds and the people change all on their own. It opens the way for people to come to Christ. I love stories of mass victory and mass conversions. I love it when you hear that a community has been hit by the power of God and lots of people come in. But sometimes it does take a lot of battles to win the war. Let's read chapter 7 and verses 10 to 13. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and they did what the Lord had commanded them. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh called on his own wise men and sorcerers, and these Egyptian magicians did the same thing with their magic. They threw down their staffs, which also became serpents. But then Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Pharaoh's heart, however, remained hard. He still refused to listen, just as the Lord had predicted. So even when it's clearly demonstrated that the Lord is God and his power is the real deal, some people still won't be convinced. They still, the, the draw of the magic arts for over some is still so strong. And we've experienced this. I spoke to somebody just a few weeks ago who had had the most powerful encounter with God and yet had been sucked right back into occult practice and alternative thinking. And this guy had, had just had the, just the most 
amazing, spontaneous intervention from God. He was in a, um, a community that was supportive of people with various mental health challenges. People that were unwell, uh, not sanctioned, but had, had chosen to live together in a supportive place so that they could um, find strength in one another and to be developing uh, in their healing. And so this guy had been part of this community for uh, a number of years. And over that time, he had just wanted to find some way to reorder his life because his, his inner world was chaos. And one day he spotted the priest that used to visit this place. He was only in sort of once or twice a week, I think. He spotted the priest walking past and a thought dropped into his mind. Oh, I wonder if, I, if that guy could help me. Because he'd been there for years, the priest had been there for years, but it never occurred to him to go and talk to the priest. That the priest might have any kind of answers to his situation. So he wrote a little note and he put it under the priest's, priest's door. Say, could I come and see you to talk to you um, one day? And the priest, probably having a bit of fun with him, wrote another note and put it under his door saying, yeah, I'm in tomorrow, you can just pop in whenever you like. Um, so this guy, he went to see the priest. And he, what he said to me was, he said, I just talked for two hours. He said, I don't think the priest really said much. Um, but it was, it was still pretty extraordinary. And I went back to my room after speaking with the priest priest and I knelt by my bedside and I said God if you're real help me and then the Lord just just showed up in the most tremendous way and he described it to me as that God moved all his chakras around and reordered his chakras and, and recentered his chi and he found that all of his mess just lifted off a darkness like an, an oppressive cloud lifted off his mind and he felt like in a single moment, God had healed him in his mind, in his spirit, in his soul, and he felt a peace that he'd never known in his life before. He said, I was just there, just trembling, knowing that God was real. And the light of God was just so powerful in my room. And he said, and after that, I, they couldn't cope with me. Because I spent the whole time in this community telling everybody that they're missing the point and what they need is God and God will help them and God will make them well and there's no point in us propping each other up and just living like this when we can get well and we can all be set free. And he lasted about 10 days and I think they kicked him out. Because he was so kind of, you're all deceived. We don't need to stay in our mess. But you know what? When he walked out of that place, within a matter of hours... He had come into contact with a spiritualist who was an occult practitioner in all kinds of ways, who seemed like an extremely spiritual person that might help him to know what to do next with this experience, who interpreted his experience to him in all kinds of way-off ways, and then signposted him to Glastonbury Gave him a load of names of all sorts of other occult practitioners that he could go and co make contact with in order to further his experience of the divine. And then he spent four years in Glastonbury, hunting in all the wrong places to find God. The enemy does not give up easily. Yeah. Yeah. He loves to keep hold of people. He will continue to deceive as long as he possibly can. Yeah. 
By the time I got to him, he, he had a whole new worldview. And, and this experience that he'd had had been so distorted of what it meant and what had happened, he'd had a whole kind of picture built about what had happened to him. And it certainly wasn't Jesus meeting him in a, in a room anymore, even though what he described was exactly what God does when he moves in power for healing. Maybe I haven't been spiritually aggressive enough over praying for his soul and praying that he would come back into a full experience of, and a clear revelation of God. But the enemy doesn't give up easily. But he does give up eventually. Chapter 8, verses 17 to 19. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded them. When Aaron raised his hand and struck the ground with his staff, gnats infested the entire land, covering the Egyptians and their animals. And all the dust in the land of Egypt turned to gnats. Pharaoh's magicians tried to do the same thing with their secret arts, but this time they failed. And the gnats covered everyone, people and animals alike. This is the finger of God, the magicians exclaimed to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart remained hard, and he wouldn't listen to them, just as the Lord had predicted. The magicians give in. There comes a point when even those who oppose God have to concede that God is at work and there's no competition. Paul saw it in Ephesus. It's that wonderful account uh, in Acts 19, I think it is, where Paul is working in Ephesus and it's a tremendous time of power. It's the time when even handkerchiefs were taken from Paul and given to people and people were made well because it was a time where God just poured, displayed his power in a tremendous way. And then God dethrones the, the false prophets. If you know the story, there's seven sons of Sceva that are going around uh, seeking to um, bring deliverance and, and things to people for, uh, for a price. And they start using Jesus' name until they get stripped and beaten and run out of town. Um, so it's like the Lord dethrones the false prophets. And then what happens? A mass turning to Christ and all the magicians bring out their sacred scrolls worth millions of pounds and burn them in the street. A whole community turns from the occult to Christ. It's that same thing where the power encounter comes. Then those who are holding the demonic realm are dethroned and many people then. The door is wide open for many people to come to faith. And we've seen this same story repeated again and again and again in Argentina. Yeah. It's very much their strategy. They will pray, they will pray, they will pray that there is an open heaven and that those who are holding back the masses would be dethroned. And then they go and proclaim the gospel. And they found many, many people turning to the Lord. In Uganda, in China, in all sorts of places around the world. It has been this, so in this country as well, as I've already said. In smaller local ways, with Ben and Heather in the remote Himalayan villages. Very much their, their strategy. They are so gentle, relationally, yet spiritually very aggressive. And what they'll do is they'll seek to build that bridge with that man of peace in that village, whoever they are. Man or woman of peace. And, 
when they're there, they will seek to tear down the strongholds over that village. And before long, the way is opened. People stop arguing. Uh, the competition drops away and people come to discover who this God is that they are hearing about. So why not here? I think we can be strongly encouraged by this story right here in Totnes. Number one, God loves to save whole communities. He loves to sweep whole communities into the kingdom. I'm frequently challenged by God. Your vision is too small. I rejoice over the ones and twos that find faith. But we have to to set apart a part of our our hearts and our yearning for the masses. Because I believe that's where God's heart is. There's not a soul in this area that God does not want to be in relationship with. I believe he wants every single one of them. And he loves to sweep whole communities in. I find that encouraging. It may seem impossible. It may seem that the whole community is spiritually deceived. But God loves to sweep them in anyway. We need to be prepared to fight over souls in our community. Even if, like Moses, we don't like the idea. You might think of that idea of picking a fight and think, hmm, I'm leaving that to somebody else. I'll let someone else stick their head above the parapet. I'll serve coffee while you guys. Um, We need to be prepared for a fight. And we need to be spiritually aggressive. There's no point in hoping that many people will come to the knowledge of Jesus and then spiritually sitting on our hands. All of these stories involve a fight behind the scenes. We must be relationally gentle, but spiritually aggressive. I wonder if um, that priest that was visiting that hospital, I wonder, though he was relationally very gentle, didn't really say very much, I wonder if he was spiritually very aggressive, like the Celts were. Like mothers and fathers in our spirit towards people, but like cage fighters in prayer over people. That's what I believe God wants us to be. See ya. As it was in Moses and Aaron's experience, the battles are often longer than we think. Sometimes we think it's going to be quick, but sometimes it takes longer than we think. Sometimes it will take more rounds than we think it's going to, to be to set somebody free. As I say, the enemy doesn't like to to let go. He really doesn't. Our job is to trust God and to keep doing as we are told. That's all Moses and Aaron really did. They showed up, said what they were supposed to say, did what they were supposed to do and let God take care of the rest. And I think that's what the Celtic church did. They prayed hard, they showed up, they simply looked after anyone that walked over that boundary and let God do the rest. We just got to do what we're asked to do. And I can't resist saying we are doing something relationally gentle but spiritually very aggressive at the Totnes Christian Festival in July. That's the spirit of that whole event. It's about showing hospitality. It's about showing friendship. It's about crossing the boundaries relationally and being kind to our community. 
Yet underneath it, there is a punch for the kingdom. And I really want to see a big impact. And I really want that to be very much in the faces of those that would hold people back from Christ as well. You know, I want to see an outpouring of power. And that's why we pray for an outpouring of power. It's not just so that we can gain kudos or we can look like we're impressive or powerful in our community. It's not just so that we can enjoy the show. It's not just so that we can stand up on a Sunday morning after it and say, wasn't it amazing that so many people came to faith and so many people got healed? That's all good and we like doing that because we do, don't we? But actually it's important because those who are negative voices towards Christianity need to see that God is a powerful God. There are some arguments that need to be torn down and sometimes it's only the power of God that can do that. God has a way of using his power to strip counterfeit power over a nation. I believe we can pray in that direction, just like our Celtic ancestors did. Amen? Paul says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And I believe that's where the Lord is taking us as a church.